to Fox Hill Road Baptist Church. And so we are, we're here. You, you can probably hear the chatter now. Uh, so if you're, you're gathered with us, good morning. If you're watching on Facebook, we wanna say good morning also. Uh, just at the outset, let me recognize that this is Memorial Day weekend. And so we remember um, those that have given their lives for the sake of, of our freedoms, our country. And so we thank God for um, those men and women, those families who have been affected by the cost of, of the, the freedoms we enjoy. And so as I was thinking about it, I thought there's, there's similarities between, so as Christians, when we hear stories of martyrs, those who have died for their faith, there's, there's a, uh, just a special bond and, and affinity we feel towards those um, and a thankfulness that, that we ought to have as Christians. And I think there's a similar feeling as Americans um, when we recognize that, that there are those that have given their lives for um, where we are now. And so this is a one week in the year where we just remember. And so we, we remember and give thanks to God for um, those who have give, given their lives. Um, and so just wanted to recognize that we'll be praying for our country and giving thanks to God for that um, shortly. Uh, we're still, so we're meeting in person this morning. So again, we have all of the, the regulations and restrictions, all, all the people out here. Uh, you all look great this morning, uh, but you all look uh, safely separated. So six feet apart. So it's, it's good to, to be with you. Um, but again, this is still temporary. We, we are praying that sooner than later, we will be able to uh, progress into phase two and then phase three and, and then get as, as close to normal again as we can. If you are staying home, please uh, don't hesitate um, to stay home. There, there's no guilt or wrongdoing. If, if you're not comfortable coming back, please stay home. And um, we're gonna keep streaming the service for you. And then lastly, just to reiterate, last week how I, at the opening, talked about uh, my, my prayer for us as a church is that we would be unified and that we would be um, loving one another, not divided. And so I, I've been encouraged by the way our church family is kind of processing through this, even with differing opinions, there, there seems to be a, a real unity. And so I'm thankful for that. And my hope is that that will continue. Um, well, this morning we're, we're gonna look at the, we're gonna kind of pick back up on the, the spirit, the, the work of the spirit. So we're gonna continue the series on the Holy Spirit. Um, and so we'll be, be looking at that in a second. Um, but as we begin, before we pray, I wanna read for a, a well-known parable um, that actually goes along with the sermon. And so Luke chapter 15, you can listen um, as I read. It's, it's a familiar parable, as I said. Uh, but Luke 15, um, Luke actually chapter 15 of Luke has, has three parables um, all about lostness and, and the joy of returning or the joy of repentance. And this is the third of those parables. Um, so I'm gonna read in Luke 15 beginning in verse 11. So here's Jesus talking to the Pharisees and he says, there was this man who had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. And the father divided his property between them. Now, not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and he took a journey into a far country. And there in the far country, he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he, this son, was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but here I perish with hunger. 
I will arise and I'm gonna go to my father and here's what I'm gonna say to him. I'm gonna say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Father, treat me as one of your hired servants. And the son, he rose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And his father ran and he embraced him and he kissed him and, he, and the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the, the best robe and, and put it on my son. Bring a ring and put it on my son's hand and, and shoes on my son's feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For the son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and as he came and he drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and he asked what these things meant. And the servant said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But the older son was angry and he refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never, ever gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who's devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to his son, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Let's, let's pray uh, this morning. Father, what a powerful testimony to who you are as our father. And so we don't even wanna take for granted the fact that we can call you father this morning. Uh, we, in light of this, this parable, we, we confess our frequent desires uh, to do things on our own without you, apart from you. We confess our frequent, frequent pursuit of things that do not and cannot satisfy. We confess, Father, we don't deserve to be counted as sons and daughters. We all, like the prodigal, have in one way or another gone astray. Yet, Father, this morning we do not lose hope because with you there is compassion. Because of Christ, we are forgiven, we're accepted, we're adopted, we are welcomed. And so because of Christ, Father, this morning we rejoice in your great love for us. And so forgive us for underestimating your love and your character, your compassion, as the, as the younger son did, but Father, also forgive us for resenting your character, for resenting your compassion and love for others like the older son did. Would you give us joy in our relationship with you as your children? Would you give us assurance in our relationship with you as your children? Would you give us a desire to see others enter into relationship with you as your children? And so we pray you'd help us as your children. Father, as, as a church here, we pray for the continued progress towards normalcy here in Virginia and in the, the country. Uh, we continue to pray for our governing officials, for mayors and governors and uh, federal leaders. Uh, we pray, Father, that you'd grant them wisdom to lead effectively. We pray for unity among our leadership, as impossible as that seems at times. We pray that you would grant unity. We continue to pray for the churches here in our, our area, in our state, in our country. Uh, we pray that, that as your people, Christians during this time would, would be unified. And Father, I pray that especially for Fox Hill Road Baptist Church, I pray that our church would be of one mind. Father, I think about the open ministry positions here at our church. Lord, I pray that you would fill them with, with those that you have prepared and called and that you would cause this ministry to flourish by adding 
to our workers. Lord, I pray for the upcoming surgeries that many in our church family have in, have coming in the month of June. We pray for effectiveness there. We pray especially for uh, Avery, who is Ron and Sherry Desern's grandson and his heart surgery coming up. We pray for uh, the, the anxious grandparents. We pray you'd comfort them. Uh, we pray for, for the parents and siblings of Avery as well. We pray that his, his surgery would be uh, successful, effective. Would you sustain him through that? And then for his recovery, we pray that that would go uh, without flaw um, or hiccup as well. Father, we uh, pray for a friend of our church family, Courtney. We pray for her as she continues to fight an aggressive cancer. We pray you'd give her strength, Lord. We pray you would uh, give her provision. We pray, Father, you'd be gracious to her. I pray that she would look to you as a rock and a shelter. I pray for her kids. Um, Lord, would you be near to her? Uh, would you intervene in her situation? We're, we're pleading with you to care for uh, Courtney. And then lastly, Lord, I, I thank you for those who have died in service of our country. Thank you for the privileges that are ours as Americans. Uh, while, while I recognize our, our nation is not perfect, it never was, never will be, but Lord, we have been blessed in many ways that other nations can only dream of. And so we, we just give you thanks for that. Uh, and Father, I pray for our nation. I pray that you would bring about a significant awakening among the citizens of our nation. And we pray for revival. We pray for an awareness of you. We pray for an embracing of, of, of Christ among the citizens of our nation. So I pray that the gospel of Christ through the ministry of local churches here and nationwide, uh, that there'd be a, a clear move of your spirit bringing about uh, the, the conversion of many um, for, for boys and girls and, and teenagers and college students and working class and retired and um, all, all across the spectrum, we pray, Lord, that you would, you would do a mighty work. Thank you for the ways that this, this is happening. Um, and we ask that you would be honored and glorified uh, to, bring, to bring much more um, about. Hello, we're thankful to be your people this morning. That's in Christ's name I pray, amen. All right, well, like I said, we are gonna continue in the um, series on the Holy Spirit. And so if you have uh, your Bibles, you can turn to Romans chapter eight. Chapter eight. So Romans eight is where we'll be. Uh, Romans 8, we're gonna look at a few verses there and we're continuing in our study of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, um, we are going to look at the work of the Spirit in God's children, okay? So the work of the Spirit in God's children. Um, as we continue the series, we're gonna see that the Spirit is given to all of God's children and, and he's given for, for some very specific purposes. And so we're gonna see some of those um, this morning. And, and so at the outset, before we get into Romans 8, I wanna make clear that we're all on the same page in recognizing that the Spirit not only does the things that we're gonna see, but the Spirit also is evidence of our belonging. So the, the, the Spirit is evidence of our sonship, our membership in God's family. So that to have the Spirit is to belong to Christ and to be part of God's family. This is why we'll see, Paul refers to the Holy Spirit as the spirit of adoption. The spirit is the evidence that we belong to God. And so as the spirit of adoption, the spirit is, is like a proof of purchase or a receipt of delivery. The spirit is called the spirit of adoption because he is proof that we are children. And so the mere presence of the spirit testifies that we belong to God. Every child of God has received the spirit uh, but, but he also, more than that, he does specific things. And so we're gonna look at those. Now, now, I read the parable of the prodigal son before we began because that is such a powerful parable. 
I mean, it's a powerful parable, and the parable teaches a powerful truth that every Christian, that, that every child of God is oftentimes prone to forget or to disbelieve. And that truth is the inability, this is as Sinclair Ferguson puts it, the inability to believe that salvation is entirely of God's grace and love. That we contribute nothing to it, that we can do nothing to earn it in any way. He continues, we are sons, but we are in danger of having the mindset of hired servants. And so as Christians, we're, we're, we're prone to disbelieve that, that we can be sons because of nothing that we've done, or daughters because, because of nothing we've done. And so you see in the parable, it's powerful because the prodigal son, after running away, after wasting all of his inheritance, squandered it on wild, wild living, he no longer had a category of thinking in his view of the world, or more importantly, in his view of his father, it was impossible for him to consider himself a son. That, that wasn't a category. And so that's why there in his mind that the son ship had sailed. He had it, but he had lost it. He had wasted it. That was no longer on the table. And so when he comes to his senses, they're wanting to, to eat the pig's food. He doesn't wonder, hey, how can I get back to be a son? That, that's not what he's thinking. He's thinking, if only I could just be a servant. Sonship isn't even in his category anymore. And so he practices this apology. He says, okay, when I get, when I get close to my dad, I'm gonna knock on the door. He's probably gonna be busy and he's probably gonna send a servant out. And so when I eventually talk to him, I'm gonna say, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. So, so just treat me as a hired servant. So that's the, the speech he's practicing. And j- just to be in the household, that's all I want. I just wanna be close to my father, j- just to have a minuscule portion of what I used to have before I squandered all, before I ran away. That, that would be more than enough for me is what the prodigal's thinking. He would have been overjoyed to be treated as, one, as well as one of the hired servants. And that's just the, that's the, parable of the parable, power of the parable because just as the son had no concept of a world where the father would be real, willing to treat him as a son, the father had no concept of a world where he wouldn't treat this prodigal as a son. Do you notice, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and he ran and he embraced him and he kissed him. My son, my son, it's a powerful, powerful parable. And it illustrates the great love of God the Father for his children. The father's heart is the point of that parable. In fact, the father's heart is the main point of all of Luke chapter 15. When one sinner returns, whether it's one sheep out of a hundred or one coin out of 10 or one son out of two, when, when what is lost is found, there is rejoicing in the heart of the father. And that is the foundation of what we're looking at today. We are children of our heavenly father. To be a Christian is to be a son or a daughter J.I. Packer puts it this way, a Christian, quote, is someone who has God as father. And and Packer says that is the richest answer to the question of what is a Christian. And so someone asks you, what's a Christian? You could go a lot of different ways, maybe a relationship with Jesus. But, But Packer says the richest answer to that question is a Christian is someone who has God as father. And so to be a Christian is to be adopted into God's family, which we, we should note here that no one is naturally born into God's father or into God's family. No one naturally has God as father. So so the the world is filled with people who are made in the image of God, who are the possession of God, but not every person that's born is God's child, God's son or daughter. There is one son, Christ, 
through whom everyone else that's a son is a son. So it is your relationship with Christ, those who receive Christ, those who believe in his name, those are the ones that become children of God. Those are the ones who are born not of blood or of the will of flesh or will of man, but born of God. And so when I say that, that we have God as our father, I'm talking about those who have put their faith in Jesus, have been reconciled to God through the life, the death, the burial, resurrection of Christ. We are in the family because of our faith in Christ. And we stay in the family because of our faith in Christ. Our union with Christ changes our identity. In him, we are part of the family. This also means that squandering our inheritance doesn't disqualify us or eliminate our title. Turning our back even on the Father doesn't cause him to disown us. To belong to Christ, those who belong to Christ belong to him now and will belong to him forevermore. And so the big picture, as we step back, before we look at Romans 8, a Christian is a child of God and it is this identity as children that the spirit is given to us to to highlight or to emphasize or to affirm that the spirit assures us of this. And so I thought, for instance, if if you went back to the prodigal son and the prodigal son was a a believer, a Christian who had been given the spirit, when he comes to himself, when he says, I'd be better off a servant in my father's house, maybe he'll welcome me back as that. For the Christian in that moment, instead of being left to his own devices, instead of doubting and struggling with disbelief in his relationship with the father, The spirit speaks up and testifies and bears witness. Not you don't deserve to be part of the father's family. Not you'd be be better off a servant. Not you're such a failure. Instead, the spirit, the spirit of adoption says, you are a son. You are still a daughter. You belong to the father. And, And so that's part of the work of the spirit. The work that takes place in God's children. And so what I wanna do today is as we look at these, this passage in Romans 8, I wanna look at three specific things that the Spirit does in regard to our standing as sons and daughters. Three things that the Spirit does in the life of God's children. Okay, so Romans chapter eight, I'm I'm only gonna read verses nine through 17, and then I'm only gonna focus on verses 14, 15, and 16, because each of those verses gives us one thing that the Spirit does. So you can follow along or you can listen as I read. And we begin in verse nine of Romans eight. I'm gonna read through verse 17. So Paul writes, Romans 8, beginning in verse nine. He writes, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Verse 14, here's the three verses we're looking at. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, And the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And so like I said, we're we're gonna look only at verses 14, 15, and 16. So we're gonna see the work of the spirit in God's children. And in verse 14, we're gonna see that the spirit leads God's children In verse 15, we're gonna see the spirit helps God's children cry. 
It's not the best wording, but, but that's what it says, so that's what I said. Um, and then thirdly, in, in verse 16, we'll see that the Spirit gives assurance or bears witness with God's children. And so, as we look here, I wanna see, I just wanna briefly look at what the verses that come before verses 14, 15, and 16, okay? Because the, the starting point for understanding our, our standing as child, children of God is recognizing that every child has received the Holy Spirit. In other words, to be a Christian is to possess the Spirit, okay? So, so I made that point at the beginning. I just wanna make that clear. This is, this is John Stott. Uh, explaining or commenting on these verses, he writes, the hallmark of authentic, the hallmark of the authentic believer is the possession or the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Indwelling sin is the lot of all the children of Adam. And the privilege of the children of God is to have the indwelling spirit to fight and subdue indwelling sin. Conversely, if we do not have Christ's spirit in us, we do not belong to Christ at all. This makes it plain that the gift of the Spirit is an initial and universal blessing received when we first repent and believe in Jesus. Okay, and so to be a Christian is to have the Spirit and to have the Spirit fully and completely at conversion. It's not as though you get a part of the Spirit at conversion and then you progress to, okay, now you can have the full benefit of the Spirit. You receive the Spirit. If you're a child of God, you have the Spirit of Christ because Paul says if you don't have the Spirit, you don't belong to God. And so the whole direction of Paul's teaching here assumes that every Christian has the spirit. They belong to Christ. They have new life. They're able to fight sin. And these are true. These things are true of each and every Christian. To be a Christian is to possess the spirit. There's no such thing as a Christian who does not have the spirit. Which enables us to look at verse 14 and the work of the spirit in the lives of God's children. We look at those confidently knowing that what Paul is gonna say the spirit does in the lives of God's children We can confidently know if if you're a Christian, you have the spirit and he is committed to doing the the exact things that Paul says he's gonna do. If you're a child of God, then these things are true in your life. The spirit is doing these things for you and in you and through you. So here's three specific ways. First, we see verse 14. The spirit leads God's children. Verse 14, for all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. Okay, pretty clear, the spirit leads God's children. Now this, this means primarily not, so, so when you think, well, how does the spirit lead? Uh, Paul, the context here makes clear that this is not when you wake up and you say, okay, what, what am I supposed to eat for breakfast? Spirit, guide me or lead me to the right decision. Or even, who am I supposed to marry? What house should we buy? Right, that's not the context here. I, I think it's, it's fair to say that the spirit does prompt you and, and, light, and, and guide you or lead you in those ways and those specific, practical ways, but, but that's not Paul's purpose here. Right? That, that's not what he's focusing on. To understand what Paul means, if you look back at verses 19 through 13, Paul's been contrasting life in the flesh and life in the spirit. And his point is that the Christian has the spirit and is, lives in obedience to the spirit and not in obedience to the flesh. And so it is by the spirit, Paul says, that the Christian puts to death the deeds of the flesh. It is by the spirit, Paul says, that the Christian kills sin and lives a life of obedience. And so the Christian is led by the Spirit specifically to lead a life that is pleasing to the Father. Specifically in relationship to our interactions with the flesh, with the old man, with sin. The Spirit leads the child of God in righteousness. The Spirit leads or guides the child of God in holiness. 
One commentator notes, the daily, hourly putting to death of the schemings and enterprises of the sinful flesh by means of the spirit is a matter of being led, directed, impelled, controlled by the spirit. And so, and so notice that the verb is passive. Children are led by the spirit. And so this is the spirit's activity that he's focusing on. This is not our job, though we have to balance it out because in verse 14, it is, it is the Christian who by the spirit puts to death the deeds of the flesh. So there's, there's responsibility for the Christian, but here the being led by the spirit is more passive. The spirit does this, guides and controls and impels the believer. And so Paul's saying that the Christian to have the Holy Spirit is to be led or directed or controlled by the spirit as opposed to the flesh. And this makes sense in the context of children. So God as a father is not content to let his children live lives filled with disobedience. God is not content to let his children revel in the works of the flesh and rejoice in their disobedience and, prolong, and jump head, headlong into the deeds of the flesh. That's why God has given his children his spirit to lead them, to guide them in Holiness towards fighting sin and living lives of freedom by the Spirit. The Spirit leads the children of God. Now, this leads to the first point of application, which is simply that, that God's children fight sin. This is a, 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 a straightforward, simple application, but this is a clear point here. God's children fight sin. Paul's logic here is simply to live according to the flesh, to live in slavery to sin is to die. Right? That's the path that leads towards death, which is why the Spirit who gives life and freedom is the means by which the deeds of the flesh are killed. And so the spirit enables the Christian to kill and get off the path towards death. The possession of the spirit, the status as a child of God, both create an animosity in the Christian concerning sin. So having the spirit and being God's child creates in us a desire to pursue holiness and not to live in sin unrepentantly. To be a Christian, to have the spirit, to be one of God's children is to be opposed by our very natures to sin. So to be a child of God is in our deepest, deepest being, we want to fight sin. That, that's, that's who we are as Christians. That's why we have the spirit, to lead us to fight sin. As the, the famous Puritan John Owen is famously quoted as saying, be killing sin or, what's the rest? or sin will be killing you. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. A Christian who is led by the Spirit is not neutral regarding sin. Sin seeks to kill the Christian, destroy the Christian, tear the Christian apart, destroy the Christian's family, destroy the Christian's relationships and reputation and assurance and confidence and comfort. All these things that God gives us, sin would seek to destroy. And if left alone, we would be destroyed. But we're not. We've been given the spirit to lead us. And just to be clear, this killing of sin is primarily, is, is mainly, is almost exclusively an internal activity. In other words, when you hear me say that the Christian is to kill sin, your first thought shouldn't be outward, external, directed toward the sins of someone else. Okay, I, pastor said I gotta go kill sin. I'm gonna go find my neighbor, my friend, and I'm gonna tell them they gotta kill their sin. That, that's not primarily the focus here. Your first thought ought to be internal. There ought to be a humility to recognize I have unmortified sin that I must mortify. Ident identifying personal sin 
that ought to be, that must be mortified, that that's where the Christian killing is directed, towards our own flesh, our own sin. And so children of God are led by the Spirit. Next point, verse 15, not only does the Spirit lead God's children, secondly, verse 15, we see the Spirit helps the Christian to cry, to cry specifically, Abba, Father. We see, look there in verse 15, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And so there's a contrast here that helps us see the second point. Paul says, you didn't receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. So, so he's saying slavery and fear, these are not the portions of the Christian. That, that's not what happened when we became a Christian. Instead, contrast, you have received not the spirit of fear, but the spirit, capital S, of adoption. This is the one by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And again, this reception of the spirit takes place at conversion, at the point that one trusts in Christ and is born again. And the spirit is the possession of each and every Christian. So each and every Christian has a spirit that, that causes us to cry, Abba, Father. To possess the spirit to become a Christian changes things. That's the point here. There, there's this relational change so that now, because of the Spirit, we know God as Father and we cry out, Abba, Father. So the Spirit replaces fear with freedom in our relationship to God. To, to become a Christian, to, to receive the Spirit, your relationship with God changes, which also means that not to have the Spirit means that your relationship with God ought to be characterized by, by a fear. It's characterized by slavery. You, you are in Adam. You are still a slave to your sin. And you are, you are separated from God. But when you become a Christian, you receive the spirit, your, your status change, your, changes, your identity changes. You then are freely accepted and know God as father. And so here in verse 15, instead of leading the Christian in a life of obedience, as we saw in verse 14, here the purpose of the spirit is focused on enabling or facilitating or, or I think you could even say creating intimacy with the Father. This is a relational thing that the Spirit does. The Spirit is the one who enables us to cry, Abba, Father. In other words, without the work of the Spirit, an intimate relationship with the Father would not be possible. You could not know God as your Father without the work of the Spirit. Without the Spirit, we would be like the prodigal son, wondering always if God might consider taking us on as a part-time servant. Always wondering, well, well maybe he'll accept me now. I, I don't, maybe, I've, maybe I've overdone it. In the pig's pen, the prodigal lacked intimacy with his father. But the good news of the ministry of the Holy Spirit is that intimacy with the father has been secured and ensured because the spirit enables us to cry, Abba, Father. We have the spirit. And we're able to cry, Abba, Father. This is the same point that Paul makes in Galatians 4. When he says in verse six and seven, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer slaves, but a son. And so again, the, the connection in Christ, in our, through our relationship with Christ, because of our relationship with Christ, we receive the spirit of his son, the Holy Spirit, the spirit of adoption, into our hearts, and, and it is that, by that spirit, it is that spirit who cries, Abba, Father. And so the ministry of the spirit, the ministry of the spirit of adoption, brings us to a deep-seated persuasion that we really are the sons and daughters of God. 
I mean, I thought about this. There's a children's book by P.D. Eastman called Are You My Mother? So maybe you boys and girls have heard that. It's about this little, little bird that, that's in an egg and his mom is, is sitting on him and the egg starts jumping and his mom says, I, I, I gotta go find some food so I can feed my, my baby bird when he's born. And so the mom goes off. Well, when the mom's gone, the, the, the egg hatches and the baby bird comes up and, and he can't find his mom. He says, I've got to find my mom. So he gets out of his nest and he just starts going around and he, he encounters all these different animals. And so he, he comes across a kitten and he says, are you my mom? And the kitten says, no, I'm a kitten. I'm not your mom. So the bird keeps going. And then there's a hen. Are you, are you my mom? No, I'm a, and it's clear. And even as kid, boys and girls read that, a bird does not come from a kitten or a hen or a dog or a cow. He, he, he continually is asking these animals, are you my mother? And no one is his mother. He can't find her. There's uncertainty when he approaches someone. Are you the one? Are you, are, you, are you my mom, the one I'm looking for? There's question, there's uncertainty. And I thought about that book because it's a clear example of what Christians are not like. Christians are not like the bird wondering and confused as to who our father is. We don't say, well, well are you him? We don't wonder. We have been told, we have been convinced We have been given the spirit of adoption who enables us to cry, Abba, Father, and to know he is my father. He's not gonna leave me. I don't have to go looking for him. Christians are not like the bird, wondering and confused. Because of the ministry of the spirit, the Christian knows that God is his or her father, and that is good news. Believers relate to God, not as slaves afraid of harsh masters, but as those graciously adopted into his family. And so we cry, Abba, Father, and we mean it, and we know that it is received by our loving Father. Well, thirdly, finally, moving on to verse 16, we see, verse 16, the Spirit gives assurance of belonging. Assurance of belonging. Verse 16, the Spirit, Paul continues, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And so Paul here, verse 16, continues by describing more specifically the work of the Spirit in terms of our adoption. And so the Spirit himself, Paul says, bears witness or or testifies or affirms with our spirit that we are children of God. And and so it's certainly connected, this verse 16 and the the function of the Spirit is connected to verse 15. They're certainly connected, but they are distinct. And and the picture here is that of a, a legal case And so he says, in this legal sense, the spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are, in fact, God's children. And so imagine, if you will, a a doubting Christian or a discouraged Christian or a convicted Christian, the Christian who, who is, for whatever reason, questioning his or her relationship with God. And so could I really be a son? Could my father really still love me? Uh, maybe Have I gone too far this time? So, so the Christian is plagued with, with doubts and, and unbelief and questions. And, and the, the Christian says, I, I think I'm his, his son. I think so. The image Paul paints here is that in a situation like that, the spirit as the legal advocate bears witness or testifies or affirms with our spirit that I am a child of God. The point being, there's certainty of that relationship. Our spirit is not alone in believing that we are God's children. The spirit joins with our spirit. In fact, most commentators, if you read on this verse, they, they, most all of them assume that the Old Testament 
a requirement from, from Deuteronomy, I think it's 15, it might be 19, but, but there's this Old Testament mandate that, that if a charge is brought forward for it to be considered as a, a legal charge or for it to be considered in a, in a, in a legal setting, it, the, the charge must be established by two or more witnesses. And so they say that, that's what Paul's doing here. He's saying that, that it, it is certain because there's another witness there's another who bears witness with your spirit. You're not alone. Which means there's two witnesses establishing the credibility of the testimony. There's a certainty. The, the, the witness of the spirit with our spirit conveys with certainty that we are children of God. We can know it. And so the spirit gives assurance and testifies that we are God's children. And it is so. I mean, this is part of how he, the assurance is the spirit and there's a mystical sense in this. But it's mystical in, as one commentator says, the best sense of the word. There's a real legitimate, genuine experience where the Christian just knows that God loves him or her. That God is benevolent towards him or her. And this is Romans 5. Where, where, where Paul says that, that God has, that the love of God has been poured, poured over, overflowing in our hearts. The love of God is, is poured in our hearts through the Spirit. And so this is the role of the Spirit. He assures us of, of the depth of our relationship with the Father, the certainty of our relationship with the Father. This is his work in all of those who are children of God. Now we're not, gonna, we're not gonna look at verse 17, but I just want you to, to notice the beginning of verse 17 where after Paul has just finished saying the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, right? There, there's certainty there. He begins verse 17 and he says, and if children, then heirs. And he qualifies, what does he mean heirs? Heirs of God. Do you notice that? An heir of God, that, that's quite remarkable. I mean, I mean, I'm assuming we know, we all know what it means to be an heir. Right? To be an heir is to be someone who has the rights of possession. And so when, it, when, when a parent dies, he, he or she, they can leave the inheritance to, to the rightful child and, and that child is an heir. Someone who has the rights of possession, they own what, what their father leaves to them. And here, did you notice what, or, or maybe I should say who, God's children are heirs of? As God's children, you are an heir of God. Now, what else could you have? You have God. As God's children, we are heirs of God. As those who have been adopted into God's family, our inheritance is not something that God gives. Our inheritance is God himself. We get God. He's ours forever. Be content with what you have for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. We can be content because we have God. We are heirs of God. This is why J.I. Packer, again, he can say that adoption, belonging to God's family, having God as father, he says is, quote, the highest privilege that the gospel offers. If you're a child of God, that is the highest privilege that the gospel has procured for you. There's nothing greater that God could give you than to be called his child. This is good news. Good news for us as God's children, the spirit has been given to us to lead us, to, to help us to cry, Abba, Father, to assure us that we are in fact 
his children. And this just leads us to, to rejoice in the love of our Father. Our Heavenly Father, here's, here's Packer one last time. He says, quote, our Heavenly Father intends his children to know his love for them and their own security in his family. He would not be the perfect father if he did not want this and if he did not act to bring it about. The father loves you. If you're in Christ, the father loves you. And he wants you to know that you are safe and secure. He's not gonna disown you. He's not gonna leave you. You're not, you're not gonna come to the end of your life and find a no vacancy sign from your father. He's gonna welcome you. Right, crossing the Jordan, there will be gates open wide and the Father looking, ready to welcome you and receive you and rejoice at your coming to him. And so the good news for the believer as God's children, we've been given the spirit of adoption. And so this morning, whether you're in a place of the prodigal, whether you're questioning or doubting God's love for you, that this, this passage, this message should encourage you to take heart. You ought to return to the Father you ought to return to the Father. In Christ, you're accepted, not, not because of your failings are you rejected, but because of Christ, you are accepted. So if you're a believer in Christ and you've, and you've ventured into a faraway country, the Father's eager for your return. And so I would, I would say return to the Father. Run, don't wait now. Return to the Father. He's eager. He's filled with compassion. You're a son and daughter and he longs to be with you, to, to, to fellowship with you intimately. But, but, but for, for some of you, you're, you're not at that place. For some of you this morning, you're, you're confident in God's love for you as a child. You're confident in your standing as a dearly loved child. And that is a great gift of God's grace to you. If, you are, if you're secure in God's love for you, rejoice and don't take that for granted. Because church history, I, I would dare say this room is filled with those who are constantly plagued with doubts and assurances. Can God really love me? And so you ought to rejoice if you are secure in God's love for you. If you're not, ask God by his spirit to assure you of your standing as, as a child. If you're, if you're not a believer, if you're watching or if you're here, you're not a Christian, God sent his son so that you would not be far off forever. He sent his son to die on the cross so that you might be accepted through the death of Christ on your behalf and the resurrection of Christ on your behalf, Christ sent his son that you might be accepted into the family and, and you're not automatically part of that family. You must put your faith in Jesus Christ. You must trust in Christ to become part of God's family. And so I, I would call you to, to, to go to Christ, to put your faith in him, to trust in him. I think I can speak for all believers. We long for you to be part of the family. We, we're, we're probably even praying for you to be part of the family. And so I'd encourage you, look to Christ. His love is sufficient. His mercy is sufficient. There's, there's acceptance for you there. And then we all together will be able to, to declare with, with the Apostle John, behold the kind of love, behold what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called his children and so we are. Let, let me pray for us as we close.